The Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery is thrilled to announce its new podcast, Intention, a limited series of thought-provoking and accessible conversations with emerging, mid-career, and established visual artists from across Canada. Hosted by writer, educator, and editor Neil Price, along with the cultural producer and curator Diane Gistel, Intention aims to shed light on the breadth of the Canadian contemporary art scene and provide a platform for diverse and artistic voices. Each of the 30 to 40 minute conversations features some of Canada's most prominent contemporary artists, including Ken Lum, June Clark, Anna Binta Diallo, Rajni Pereira, and Leulia Shragi, among many more esteemed visual artists. Look for Intention, a podcast from the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. I'm always excited when we do episodes with familiar voices, as this one is, with two of our very special colleagues, because in meetings that we have, in the editorial meetings, I get to witness their brilliance in a, you know, in a very private way. And it's so exciting to put it out there and be like, look at them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And, and because in those meetings and the emails and everything else that tether us to each other, we rarely hear conversations drop down into depth like this. That's true. That's true. But yeah, no, tell us, Sky, I kind of jumped the gun as usual, but tell us who we're hearing from today. Absolutely. Um, We're hosting a conversation today between Momus Associate Editor Jessica Lynn and Momus Managing Editor Catherine G. Wagley. who have both guest hosted for us in previous seasons. But notably today, they're not speaking as editors or as hosts, but as two writers subjects to one another, two critics who are enamored of a shared text. Right. So I think you kind of, you were Twitter stalking them, essentially. <laughs> I do like to <laughs> lightly Lovingly stalk observing. My, <laughs> my staff. <laughs> Lovingly observing. Let's say that instead. <laughs> so you were. <laughs> this is the new <laughs> handle for X. Lovingly observed. Lovingly observed. <laughs> we can we can turn this around for Elon. <laughs> uh, that is good. That is good. Actually, um, but yeah. So you were. You happened to see. You <laughs> happened to be looking, and this happened. <laughs> They, Jess and Catherine were talking about um, on Twitter this essay that they both love, uh, this essay by Barbara Christian titled The Race to Theory, which was published in a journal called Feminist Studies. I loved that Catherine described it as an essay that lives very much in the present. Yeah, absolutely. Barbara Christian was an American critic, writer, educator. She was a prof of African-American studies at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and the first Black woman to be granted tenure at that university. Um, And she was best known for her Black literary studies. She was one of the first scholars to bring the works of Toni Morrison and Alice Walker to the attention of the academia. But in this fire essay, The Race to Theory, she's absolutely exploding the academe from within it. So she's going toe-to-toe with her peers, in fact, in this essay. Yeah, it's it's an iconically confrontational essay um, about how theory was overpowering criticism. 
Yeah, about how the largely white monolith of French theory was obscuring and delegitimizing the necessarily intertextual and contextual analysis of Black writing at the time. And it was Mm -hmm. another power structure being imposed, right? Like dampening what was happening in the present and, you know, coordinating rules by which we could um, analyze the past rather than sort of activate and really greet um, new language that was being produced in, in that moment. So, Sort of to quote Audre Lorde, who Barbara Christian ends with, um, and you'll hear Jessica Lynn do this reading in a moment, um, Lorde says, where that language does not yet exist, it is our poetry which helps to fashion it. And it's it's very clear that Barbara Christian is making an argument that is so resonant for both Jess and Catherine around greeting your peers where they are and modeling criticism to meet the work on its own terms. Yeah, and it's really amazing to have this trifecta of women in this episode because they're all sort of engaging in this tradition in their own ways. Um, considering Jess's work with founding Arts.Black and her residency for Momus, for instance, has so much to do with meeting the present and working with an intergenerational network of Black art writers, platforming them. So she's really con- continuing Barbara Christian's tradition. Yeah. And I think Catherine is doing a very similar thing in yeah. LA in terms of her community there. So, which we can see across the writing. She's very determined to write about and produce language for artists who are actively forging new visual and linguistic lines for themselves in Los Angeles. And this really felt like the first time I was hearing Catherine and Jess connect across those lines and understand that this was such a shared ethic, in fact, at the root of both of those practices. Um was just hugely confirming in terms of, you know, mirroring the the work that we're we're doing through Momus um, writ large. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, it's like being friends with somebody and seeing them do something that you greatly respect and realizing, like, oh yeah, that's why I love you. Okay, here is Jessica Lynn reading Barbara Christian's The Race to Theory, followed by a conversation between Jessica and Catherine G. Wagley. And listeners, just to note that Sky is going to pop back in at the end to conduct a rapid fire round with Jessica and Catherine. I am particularly perturbed by the movement to exalt theory as well because of my own adult history. I was an active member of the Black arts movement of the 60s and know how dangerous theory can become. Many today may not be aware of this, but the Black arts movement tried to create Black literary theory and in doing so became prescriptive. My fear is that when theory is not rooted in practice, it becomes prescriptive, exclusive, elitish. An example of this prescriptiveness is the approach the Black arts movement took towards language. For it, Blackness resided in the use of Black talk, which they defined as hip urban language. So that when Nikki Giovanni reviewed Paul Marshall's chosen place, Timeless People, she criticized the novel on the grounds that it was not Black, for the language was too elegant, too white. Blacks, she said, did not speak that way. Having come from the West Indies where we do, some of the time, speak that way, I was amazed by the narrowness of her vision. 
the emphasis on one way to be Black resulted in the works of Southern writers being seen as non-Black, since the Black talk of Georgia does not sound like the Black talk of Philadelphia. Because the ideologues, like Baraka, come from urban centers, they tended to privilege their way of speaking, thinking, writing, and to condemn other kinds of writings as not being Black enough. Whole areas of the canon were assessed according to the dictum of the Black arts nationalist point of view, as in Addison Gale's The Way of the New World, while other works were ignored because they did not fit the scheme of cultural nationalism. Older writers like Ellison and Baldwin were condemned because they saw that the intersection of Western and African influences resulted in a new Afro-American culture, a position with which many of the Black nationalist ideologues disagreed. Writers were told that writing love poems was not being Black. Further examples abound. It is true that the Black arts movement resulted in a necessary and important critique, both of previous Afro-American literature and of the white established literary world. But in attempting to take over power, it, as Ishmael Reitz satirizes so well in Mumbo Jumbo, became much like its opponent, monolithic and downright repressive. It is this tendency towards the monolithic, monotheistic, etc., which worries me about the race per theory. Constructs like the center and the periphery reveal that tendency to want to make the world less complex by organizing it according to one principle, to fix it through an idea, which is really an ideal. Many of us are particularly sensitive to monolithism since one major element of ideologies of dominance, such as sexism and racism, is to dehumanize people by stereotyping them, by denying them their variousness and complexity. Inevitably, monolithism becomes a metasystem in which there is a controlling ideal, especially in relation to pleasure. Language as one form of pleasure is immediately restricted and becomes heavy, abstract, prescriptive, monotonous. Variety, multiplicity, eroticism are difficult to control. And it may very well be that these are the reasons why writers are often seen as persona non grata by political states, whatever form they take, since writers, artists have a tendency to refuse to give up their way of seeing the world and of playing with possibilities. In fact, their very expression relies on that insistence. Perhaps that is why creative literature, even when written by politically reactionary people, can be so freeing, for in having to embody ideas and recreate the world, writers cannot merely produce one way. The characteristics of the Black arts movement are, I am afraid, being repeated again today, certainly in the other area to which I am especially tuned. In the race for theory, feminists, eager to enter the halls of power, have attempted their own prescriptions. So often I have read books on feminist literary theory that restrict the definition of what feminist means and overgeneralize about so much of the world that most women as well as men are excluded. 
nor seldom do feminist theorists take into account the complexity of life, that women are of many races and ethnic backgrounds with different histories and cultures, and that as a rule, women belong to different classes that have different concerns. Seldom do they note these distinctions, because if they did, they could not articulate a theory. Often, as a way of clearing themselves, they do acknowledge that women of color, for example, do exist, then go on to do what they were going to do anyway, which is to invent a theory that has little relevance for us. That tendency towards monolithism is precisely how I see the French feminist theorists. They concentrate on the female body as the means to creating a female language, since language, they say, is male and necessarily conceives of woman as other. Clearly, many of them have been irritated by the theories of Lacan for whom language is phallic. But suppose there are peoples in the world whose language was invented primarily in relation to women, who, after all, are the ones who relate to children and teach language. Some Native American languages, for example, use female pronouns when speaking about non-gender-specific activity. Who knows who, according to gender, created languages. Further, by positioning the body as the source of everything, French feminists return to the old myth that biology determines everything and ignore the fact that gender is a social rather than a biological construct. I could go on critiquing the positions of French feminists who are themselves more various in their points of view than the label which is used to describe them, but that is not my point. What I am concerned about is the authority this school now has in feminist scholarship, the way it has become authoritative discourse, monologic, which occurs precisely because it does have access to the means of promulgating its ideas. The Black arts movement was able to do this for a time because of the political movements of the 1960s. So too with the French feminists who could not be inventing theory if a space had not been created by the women's movement. In both cases, both groups posited a theory that excluded many of the people who made that space possible. Hence, one of the reasons for the surge of Afro-American women's writing through the 1970s and its emphasis on sexism in the Black community is precisely that when the ideologues of the 1960s said Black, they meant Black male. I and many of my sisters do not see the world as being so simple. And perhaps that is why we have not rushed to create abstract theories. For we know that there are countless women of color, both in America and in the rest of the world, to whom our singular ideas would be applied. There is, therefore, a caution we feel about pronouncing Black feminist theory that might be seen as a decisive statement about third world women. This is not to say that we are not theorizing. Certainly, our literature is an indication of the ways in which our theorizing of necessity is based on our multiplicity of experiences. There's at least one other lesson I learned from the Black arts movement. One reason for its monolithic approach had to do with this desire to destroy the power which controlled Black people, but it was a power which many of its ideologues wished to achieve. The nature of our context today is such that an approach which desires power single-mindedly must of necessity become like that which it wishes to destroy. 
Rather than wanting to change the whole model, many of us want to be at the center. It is this point of view that writers like June Jordan and Audre Lorde continually critique, even as they call for empowerment, as they emphasize the fear of difference among us and our need for leaders rather than a reliance on ourselves. For one must distinguish the desire for power from the need to become empowered, that is, seeing oneself as capable of and having the right to determine one's life. Such empowerment is partially derived from a knowledge of history. The Black arts movement did result in the creation of Afro-American studies as a concept, thus giving it a place in the university where one might engage in the reclamation of Afro-American history and culture and pass it on to others. I'm particularly concerned that institutions such as Black studies and women's studies fought for with such vigor and at some sacrifice are not often seen as important by many of our Black or women scholars, precisely because the old hierarchy of traditional departments is seen as superior to these marginal groups. Yet, it is in this context that many others of us are discovering the extent of our complexity, the interrelationships of different areas of knowledge in relation to a distinctly Afro-American or female experience. Rather than having to view our world as subordinate to others, or rather than having to work as if we were hybrids, we can pursue ourselves as subjects. My major objection to the race for theory, as some readers have probably guessed by now, really hinges on the question, for whom are we doing what we are doing when we do literary criticism? It is, I think, the central question today, especially for the few of us who have infiltrated the academy enough to be wooed by it. The answer to that question determines what orientation we take in our work, the language we use, the purposes for which it is intended. I can only speak for myself, but what I write and how I write is done in order to save my own life. And I mean that literally. For me, literature is a way of knowing that I am not hallucinating, that whatever I feel, know, is. It is an affirmation that sensuality is intelligence, that sensual language is language that makes sense. My response then is directed to those who write what I read and to those who read what I read, put concretely, to Toni Morrison and to people who read Toni Morrison, among whom I would count few academics. That number is increasing, as is the readership of Walker and Marshall. But in no way is the literature Morrison, Marshall, or Walker create supported by the academic world nor given the political context of our society do I expect that to change soon. For there is no reason, given who controls these institutions, for them to be anything other than threatened by these writers. My readings do presuppose a need, a desire among folk who, like me, want to save their own lives. My concern, then, is a passionate one, for the literature of people who are not in power has always been in danger of extinction or co-optation, not because we do not theorize, but because what we can even imagine, far less who we can reach, is constantly limited by societal structures. For me, literary criticism is promotion as well as understanding, a response to the writer to whom there is often no response, to folk who need the writing as much as they need anything. I know from literary history 
the writing disappears unless there is a response to it. Because I write about writers who are now writing, I hope to help ensure that their tradition has continuity and survives. So my method, to use a new lit crit word, is not fixed, but relates to what I read and to the historical context of the writers I read and to the many critical activities in which I am engaged, which may or may not involve writing. It is a learning from the language of creative writers, which is one of surprise so that I might discover what language I might use. For my language is very much based on what I read and how it affects me, that is, on the surprise that comes from reading something that compels you to read differently, as I believe literature does. I, therefore, have no set method, another prerequisite of the new theory, since for me, every work suggests a new approach. As risky as that might seem, it is, I believe, what intelligence means a tuned sensitivity to that which is alive and therefore cannot be known until it is known. Audre Lorde puts it in a far more succinct and sensual way in her essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury. As they become known to and accepted by us, our feelings and the honest exploration of them become sanctuaries and spawning grounds for the most radical and daring of ideas. They become a safe house for that difference so necessary to change and the conceptualization of any meaningful action. Right now, I could name at least 10 ideas I would have found intolerable or incomprehensible and frightening, except as they came after dreams and poems. This is not idle fantasy, but a disciplined attention to the true meaning of it feels right to me. We can train ourselves to respect our feelings and to transpose them into a language so they can be shared. And where that language does not yet exist, it is our poetry which helps to fashion it. Poetry is not only a dream and vision. It is the skeleton architecture of our lives. It lays the foundation for a future of change, a bridge across our fears of what has never been before. That's so great. It's every time I read it, um, or in this case, hear it read, I, I don't know. It really makes me believe in being a critic, um, in a way that, uh, it never, it never goes away. Um, when I read that essay, it's very, um, it makes the work feel very necessary. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I feel like she reminds me that this work too is deeply connected to the work of being an artist. Um, in fact, the first time I read it, I think I had a kind of audible response to the moment in the essay towards the, the top where she reminds that critics, in fact, were artists at one point. They were the poets, they were the novelists. Um, and in a moment when I am personally reckoning with what it means to consider myself an artist, rereading this was just a nice um, assurance that the binary that we've established is a little arbitrary. And in fact, like our work can do a thing that we think artists do anyway. And, and that that's so potent for me right now. Yeah, for sure. 
I wonder um, where were you at in your in your life as a writer or person when you first encountered this this essay? Yeah, I didn't read this essay until after Arts.Black had been founded. So it must have been 2015. I never read her work in school as an undergraduate. In fact, it's funny because I, I think I was reading a lot of the creative writers that she studied and um, about whom she wrote, but the theoretical, <laughs> the theoretical never came, came up for me. Um, and so it was only when I decided to work in criticism that I came to her, um, which felt like coming to her right on time. You know, we come to people when we need to. When did you first read this essay and encounter her work? Finally, I think it was the same, around the same time, 2014, 2015. It was just sent to me, but from a friend of a friend, it was kind of like a, it got sent around. (laughs) Somebody must have discovered it and been like, this is amazing. And then sent it to a friend who sent it to me. Um, and it was like, I was in, um, a different place then than I am now. Mm-hmm. I think I was struggling a lot more to make ends meet doing this work. And so it was really nice to read something that, I don't know, made it, cause sometimes it seems indulgent to want to do this work, even though it's totally wrongheaded. Like sometimes it feels like if your goals in doing this work are for, for how you want to live, mm-hmm then that's not, then how do you expect to make a living Uh, doing this kind of work? And I think this essay probably landed um, with me at a time when I needed a reminder that it was worth it to want to do this work because I wanted to give space to ideas and artists who who were there, who were doing this work that I found so urgent, but who weren't um, getting attention or getting platformed um, in mainstream publications or corn galleries, etc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that resonates, right? That like we can attend to the living, <laughs> you know, like the tendency to, um, or at least in this essay, in her indictments to kind of over rely on a precedent um, or to kind of make the precedent the only thing that we should be training our attention to. It felt when I was beginning to think about criticism and in a way similar to my encounter with Bell Hooks um, in her essay collection, Art on My Mind, that they're both saying there's something right in front of you and like the things that and the artists and the people that are in front of you, um, that like living, breathing work there is pleasure there. There's value there. Um, and it doesn't diminish, uh, for me at least at the time, what I was feeling is that turning my attention to the here now does not diminish any sense of rigor or imagination that I have as a writer and as a critic. I felt so intimidated when I was first starting out because I did not come to this work, um, to this industry with uh, a deep well of art historical knowledge of philosophical texts. And I found a sense of safety in what she's saying. And I, I, I still do, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe even more, more aggressively so now than when I was first beginning, because I didn't 
have a full sense of the landscape 10 years ago. And now I do. And I'm like, oh, right. She's, this still applies. This is still very accurate. Totally. Yeah, yeah. it feels so relevant. I, which is kind of um, depressing. I mean, it's, it's very, it's very inspiring always to read her work, but it's also depressing that the relevance ha- hasn't, sh- that it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like in reading this, like, Oh yeah, some of these things we figured out, or some of these things um, are no longer happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like all of it still lives very much in the present. Yeah, yeah. And there was this moment as she talks about um, language, especially, or as she condemns a use of language that is not interested in like inviting a reader into its ideas. I thought of you, Catherine, and what you had said to me a couple of weeks ago um, when we were, when I was working on an edit and you posed this question, I'm going to paraphrase now, but you posed the question about what does it mean to work as editors and in service of a writer and their ideas, but not at the disservice of readers and I really appreciated that question when you first posed it. Um, but I saw an immediate connection in rereading Barbara Christian too, that there is a, there is a world possible, whereas art critics, <laughs> you know, the tendency to over-intellectualize, to write in a manner that can feel so isolating, um, that only reifies certain traditions or experiences or uh, continuums of thought that it's, it, it's, it abounds, it's everywhere. But when she calls us, her readers, writers who are also her readers, into thinking about undoing that, I really felt like an immediate relationship to the question that you posed to me when I was stuck on that edit, right? That we're there to care for our writers, but we're also there to equally care for the people who will be reading those writers. And that does mean that how we tend to language should be a a gesture that is not interested in isolation, that's not interested in an exclusionary um, space, but one of invitation and capaciousness. You know, when you were reading, of course, that, that question she asks, for whom are we doing what we are doing? when we do literary criticism, I realized that I hadn't thought that much about the line that she follows it up with, which it is, I think, the central question today, especially for the few of us who have infiltrated the academy enough to be wooed by it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's, I mean, that is like a real balance. And I, I, I'm so impressed by her as somebody who did infiltrate the academy, who did like, you know, she was the first black woman hired at Berkeley. I, I believe, or at least the first to get tenure. And she, I mean, to choose to be in those spaces and also choose to always be critical of them is pretty brave. In that, I mean, now, it's still brave now, but in that moment, I've read a lot of memoirs, not 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 by her. I don't totally know what her experience was in the academy, um, other than what I've gleaned from, um, like, the intro to Black Feminist Criticism in this essay, mm-hmm. among some other texts. But you know, it was really hard to yeah. be, to be a woman in the academy at all at that point, um, especially a black woman, and to be uh, resistant to the academy. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot about that too. I mean, and her relationship to other Black women writers who came to the Academy to make a living. Um, And I think about how this is a, a, a morbid leap, but I feel like it's important to also acknowledge, you know, that these women, they died really young, you know, and they died often of cancer, right? Like she dies of cancer. Audre Lorde dies of cancer. In fact, Audre Lorde, you know, talked about how, I believe it was Hunter at the time, wouldn't give her the leave she needed um, while she was sick. June Jordan, who's also at Berkeley, dies of cancer, right? And so I think even as the Academy became a way for these women to make a living, for them to enact the principles of mentorship and and love that flows throughout their work, the Academy also was detrimental to to their to their livelihoods, you know. Um, and I think that is a that is a dynamic that I am still I'm I'm really devastated by it, but I'm also still trying to wrap my head around the idea that as a critic, the kind of livelihood that I will need to keep paying bills, to keep working, you know more than likely will lead me to a place where I've already seen what it has done to people who I consider to be teachers on the page, you know, and it's such a daunting, um, it's such a daunting path to stare, stare at. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think that, um, I think it's probably not unfair to say that, that struggles and the, and the, and the damage the Academy did to women like Barbara Christian and their deaths, which were premature, like they should have been around longer, affects then our access to their ideas. Like we found them indirectly. And and then you and I are both, I think, actively doing the work of helping other people find them. But but it's all, it, you know, it happens in these informal channels. Um, whereas they were doing a lot of work to change the formal channels Uh of how ideas are disseminated and different ways of thinking are validated and how um, knowledge is, is treated as something that is not, as you were saying earlier, is not, um, is not only for those who have a certain pedigree that the work of a critic is to help disseminate and make accessible this knowledge and to validate people who want to engage with it, that they have a lived experience that causes them to come to this literature, this art, um, that as a critic, you can actually help open that up um, rather than make it more rarefied, which I think a lot of art criticism, academic and also non, does. It makes it seem like if you don't know the right things, if you don't know the right names and the right references, you can't understand this. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's the you don't go here phenomenon, you know, Um which can be so demoralizing, but more than that, it's boring. I, I think it's so boring. And I, I love, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's like how, yes, how many aesthetic, creative, 
worlds are out there and shouldn't we all be just as curious about those constellations as we are told or taught to be curious about the kind of one singular constellation that's often presented before us in a visual arts sense. I wanted to ask maybe connected to that um, because in various ways, we've both talked about the artists that we felt drawn to, whose work we felt compelled by, um, or and still feel compelled by. But I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about those folks for you. You know, Barbara Christian talked so much about Alice Walker. She wrote so much about Toni Morrison, Paul Marshall, et cetera. But I'm wondering who those people might be for you, were you to kind of declare, um, you know, like a, a public tether, if you will. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think there are, there are, for me, there are artists who have become part of my life and because I wrote about them and, um, like they became, I wrote about them. I kept writing about them. Then they became people I talked to. And I think that, and I did I actually wrote an essay about this for Momus early on when I was contribute. Uh, it was my, maybe my first or second piece for Momus about the comp, because that was starting to happen. It was about the complications of what happens when, you know, you're orienting yourself as a critic and then you become so entwined with the work of these artists who are helping you think. Um, and there are a few over the years. One of them is Corazon del Sol, who, um, is an artist that um, I've written about for Momus and is now a good friend. And, and um, one of the subjects of my books is her grandmother who ran an art gallery that showed a lot of conceptual art in Los Angeles. Um, and I think for that, I, initially I, I discovered her, her show about her grandmother's work and it was all conceptual art from the seventies, but it was installed in such a way that I no longer felt, I didn't feel like I knew the story. And because, because it was installed in such a way that invalidated the story I thought I knew about conceptualism in the 70s, I was able to engage with the individual works in a different way. And it, it just, it, it, it spun me in a direction I wanted, I wanted to be going in any way. And then, um, and then Corazon was hosting picnics in the, in the exhibition. So it was like, you know, these works by John Belisari and Joseph Gassuth and, um, Al Rippersberg, alongside, alongside some artists that aren't as well known, like um, Paul Cotton or um, Dorothy Ian O'Neill, she's better known in, over the past decade, but um, or James Story, like artists that are Charles Nothing, artists that I hadn't known were in proximity with these artists I did know, and then there was a picnic spread laid out on the floor, and I was like, mm-hmm. yes, like this is a kind of it, it. It takes away the hierarchy in a way that I just want to. I want to be in this space. And so that slowly over the years became a friendship um, that, you know, has a really constant and um, vibrant influence on my work in an ongoing way. Um, you know, and I think there are, there are other artists like that, like Kenyatta Hinkle, who I wrote about when she was in the first Made in LA. And then I just felt like, I, you know, at the time I felt like that was something I could do was to talk about her her project and, and, and give it space 
because I was at the LA Weekly at that time. And, and like, and, and there are other artists like that, that, that I've followed. And I think that even if I don't write as actively about them anymore, they're very foundational to who, who I became as a writer. What about you? Yeah, I like that. Even if you don't write about them as much, they are foundational. I feel that way when I think about folks like Chloe Bass or Camila Janan Rashid. I think about that when I think about Simone Lee, who has had an incredible um, uh, reception recently and whose work I've long admired and writing about Simone in particular in a very public way over, or engaging with her work in a very public way over the course of several years has also impacted how I think about distinctions between craft, for example, and contemporary art, um, diasporic histories, um, ge- Black geographies. Um, and you're right, you know, I'm not always on their beat, so to speak, but I don't know if I would be the same kind of writer that I am had I not first gotten close to their work. And then I think as a result to them, Um, there's a passage from Looking for Lorraine by Dr. Imani Perry that I really love where she talks about friendship and intellectual friendships in particular. And she's talking about Lorraine Hansberry and James Baldwin and how their friendship was akin to the swimming in the waters of one another's imagination. And I, I love that so much because that's really how I felt about folks like Camila, about Chloe, about Naima Green or Sable Elise Smith. They've really invited me into their imaginations in this way that has felt um, unencumbered in a way that's felt nuanced and complex. And for me, that has been, that's been the way that I've learned to think about art, which perhaps, yes, of course, is maybe not the most um, distant (laughs) relationship to have, but I do think that I've been swimming around in all of these folks' imagination so that my own imagination is sharpened and I don't know. I, I kind of think that that is, that is the kind of writer or critic that I'm supposed to be, even if it does betray, you know, popular conventions of this mode of working. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I came to criticism accidentally, I suppose, which I think is a very common story. Uh, but I, I, you know, I'd studied arts, visual art, and I, um, I'd moved to Los Angeles and I, um, I needed to make money and I'd always been a good writer, you know, like I, I got, I did well in college. <laughs> like I, I was good. I was good at writing. I wrote some for some college papers, but so I just like, was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pitch myself and, um, and make a buck and do something I want to do, which is go see art. Um, and and then I got kind of hooked on it. And I think what I got hooked on was the way in which I was able to learn through seeing and writing about the artists and the ways of working and seeing the world that I wanted to be in conversation with. And so for me, like, you know, I love a hack job. Like, I love a really well-crafted. And in a way, Barbara Christian is, like, a really well-crafted takedown of this essay. 
I love that work and I, and I love when I have an opportunity to do it myself, but it's not what I'm here for. Um, that's not what I'm ultimately looking for in doing this work mm-hmm. is to be, to be a critic, to be critical, to, right. to, 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 to draw lines in the sand about what's valuable and what's not. Right. I'm trying to think if I've ever written a take. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, well, no, that's a lie. Um, Taylor Aldridge, my art side black partner and co-founder, and I did write what probably is considered a takedown of Blake Gopnik in 2015 when he selected a painting by Alma Thomas um, for his like daily pick or what I don't I don't remember the exact title. Um, and I remember being so upset by the language he applies to Thomas, both her formal gestures and the assumptions he makes about her and how she works. And that's probably the only one. And that's probably too the only one because it was before I had a sense that um, people could retaliate or <laughs> might not get work otherwise. Um, which is not to say that I don't appreciate them. I mean, like you said, Barbara Christian is essentially calling out an entire field saying do better or stop doing it at all. But I don't know that I've ever been so um, emboldened enough, but also so irritated enough to say it like this. Maybe time will change that, right? (laughs) Um, But I feel as though in this moment, like she says, it is both um, promotion and like a method of understanding. And I think that's the way, that's why I come to this work. I want to be in perhaps not promotion, but an honest, um, I want to be able to honestly engage with the work of artists who teach me how to ask different questions, teach me how to ask sharper questions. And I want to engage in that work in a manner that doesn't um, let folks off the hook, if you will. But I'm not here to, yeah, I'm not here always for the takedown. I don't know, but maybe that means I'm too soft. Maybe that means <laughs> I need to see more things. Um, I think it also depends on what kind of platform you're writing for at the time. Like, you know, if you're writing for a platform that has an, uh, a responsibility to cover widely or to cover the things at the major galleries and major museum shows, then I think there's a lot more opportunity and probably um, necessity for a takedown. But if you're doing what I've been doing in the last year or two where I I don't have that kind of beat where I really am able to write about the things that compel me, then it's, it's rare and far between when something is irritating enough or seems problematic enough that I want to pitch, uh, pitch a really critical review. Yeah. Yeah. For essay. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, unlike Christian writing this in 87, I mean, the internet has also completely changed the way we are allowed or encouraged or um, think about the public square, the town hall, you know? On that note, I can't, I, I, this, is, this is like, I, 
I can't think of another word other than subtweeting to describe what she's doing with the French feminists, yeah. <laughs> which I know is not the right word for 1987, but but it is it exactly <laughs> is that. <laughs> and I I love I love that about this essay. I love that she's um, not naming names in the people she's bringing down, but naming names in the people she wants to lift up. Yes. Um, because it it just I mean it's it's just a it's a critical choice that's rhetorically really effective. Yeah, yeah. And also you're like, and also you get the pleasure as a reader of being like oh, Helene Sizu or something. Mm-hmm. Like you're like naming the names yourself in your head, and that always feels really validating when you mm-hmm. know who they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I kept reading this thinking about who I would or would not name were I to write an essay like this about visual arts criticism. I'm not going to name them in this conversation, though I think we know who could be named, right? And that gave me a lot of pleasure. And I think maybe looping us back to the beginning of the conversation, it also felt really affirming to know that I'm not off the mark, right? That our intelligences, our sensibilities, our generosities that we bring as writers are absolutely in line with the most expansive way to think about covering visual culture for the widest or greatest amount of people. And that someone like Barbara Christian is like, that's all I'm trying to do too. You know, <laughs> like it really could be simpler. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was a fun exercise to create my own list in my head and to also see that yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe there is lineage here, you know, like maybe, maybe um, my work were Barbara Christian alive today. Maybe she'd be like, yeah, you, you're all right. Don't worry. I'm not coming for you. <laughs> Kablusiak is the grand winner of the $100,000 2023 Sobe Art Award, Canada's preeminent prize for contemporary visual arts. The announcement was made on November 18th by the previous Sobe Art Award winner, Divya Mera, during a special celebration at the National Gallery of Canada, which was broadcast live across the country. The remaining shortlisted artists, Gabrielle Lurondel Hill, Michelle Pearson Clark, Anahita Naruzi, and Seamus Gallagher, each received $25,000. The Sobe Art Award recognizes Canadian visual artists at a critical juncture in their careers. Kablusiak is a multidisciplinary Inuvialic artist who explores connections and disconnections among family and community ties within the Inuit diaspora, as well as the impact of colonization on Inuit expressions of gender and sexuality, on health and well-being, and on daily life. The 2023 Sobe Art Award jury from west to east includes Matthew Highland, Haima Sivanesson, Wanda Nanabush, Evelyn Beaudry, Pamela Edmonds, and Cecilia Alamani. All of the 2023 Sobe Art Award finalists are currently on view at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa until March 3rd, 2024. I thought it'd be fun to talk about why it's boring to... Uh, I forget what the context you use, you use the word boring in jest, but I was like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I would like to talk about boringness. Like wh- why s- partly I want to, you know, I want this work to be fun and mm-hmm. exciting and interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I had brought that up in relation to only attending to an inherited quote unquote canon 
like Western art. Um, and the reason for me that I feel like that's boring is because when I'm like leading with curiosity, I find that the way I want to write about an artist also pulls from their like formal experimentations, meaning, and this might be a hot take, but the exhibition review, for example, that's not a form that I work in anymore, mostly because I felt like it couldn't really hold all of the interesting things I wanted to do on the page from a craft perspective. And I felt like, or I feel like, if I'm engaging with artists in a way that is like omnivorous, my writing also responds to that from a craft perspective. And that feels like the thing that I'm especially interested in at this point in in my development as a writer. Like I'm trying to think craft-wise, like what are the different things I could do um, in response to the kind of culture I'm consuming? And a kind of criticism that I was or had been encouraged to inherit isn't always interesting enough from a craft perspective for me. Um, and I don't want to overemphasize for listeners and make it seem like I'm like, you know, writing in fragments or pulling a Maggie Nelson on people. But I just, <laughs> but I am trying to think about other um, modes on the page that could be just as interesting or just as nuanced as a work itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It totally does. Um I'm also thinking like, you know, well, recently I read an essay by Kay Larson from also from the eighties around the same time where she was talking, she was talking about like David Saleh and that group of artists. And, and she was talking about Clement Greenberg and she was like, okay, yeah. So we're rejecting Clement Greenberg now, but we're still all talking about Clement Greenberg. Like it's, it, we're still in the same cycle, even if the rejection, even if we're supposedly rejecting it, because we're not getting out of the confines of this actually pretty limited conversation about what makes a good painting. Um, and I think about that. Well, I think about it. Cause I, I have a, I have a different relationship. Like I'm still kind of interested in the exhibition review as a forum. Like I still am kind of interested in what I could do within that forum. Although I totally understand why you're not. Um, and, and part of the reason I'm so excited to work with Momus and to work with you and to work with, the writers that we, we get to work with as editors is that we're working in a space where we're not overly, um, we, we don't subscribe to that forum as, as the only valid way to look at an exhibition or something or, um, or the most, or the most reliable way to look at an exhibition. Like that's not an assumption we're coming from, which is great, but I do go back. I've been reading a lot of reviews because for me, um, in some of the historical research that I'm doing, the, the review is the record of what the show looked like and what was in it. And um, it's just so interesting to see the limitations. Yeah. The limitations of the form when the form as it's been used previously, doesn't lend itself to talking about what the critic is seeing. And then the form itself and the precedent causes the critic to shut down what they're seeing because it doesn't fit the the value system or the um 
or the possibilities that the form has already allowed for. And so, and so it's amazing, you know, it's amazing from this current perspective, reading stuff from artists that we now know did quite well being shut down. Um, but then you realize how many, you know, how many other ways in which that's happening with artists who don't end up finding their way into the canon. And that, um, and, and I guess to go back to boringness, and that's boring. It's boring that the forum is keeping critics from writing about uh, all the strange things they don't have words and form for yet. Absolutely. And as much as, you know, I guess there's a way in which sometimes wanting, wanting diversity and wanting, wanting, um, wanting a, for artists who are, who are placed on the margins, even though the margin is something that Barbara Christian really, really effectively argues against in this essay, but um, wanting to bring those things conventionally labeled marginalized back into a more fluid part of a more active centered discourse is seen as kind of like ethical, like, like being concerned with values or conscious conscientiousness or political correctness or and for me that's not that like sure yes I have values and I and I and I but I also just want the conversation to be more interesting and exciting yeah yeah and when that can't happen the kind of apparatus of criticism just circles back to the same I don't know five six seven eight nine ten artists and that also is boring and I think to your point a publication like Momus is like an intervening hand, right? Like it's really trying to say like, look at all these other planes that we could be living in. And like, why not go there? Like, let's go there. In fact, we know writers who are already there. We know artists who are already there. So just follow us. Um, and I, I think that's, that's what Christian is. That's what her work did, right? Like she says it, like I already knew I grew up in a place where we were making language in a way that was unconcerned or unencumbered by this kind of like external gaze, if you will. Like these people were already telling stories in a way that was fascinating and difficult um, and posed some serious problems for my mind. It was already there. So I'm just going to go there, (laughs) you know. Yes. Yes to everything that's just been said. And and I I started this day in a really hard spot and you two have just like floated me up. So thank you. Okay. So we have a short window here. I've cherry picked three questions each. I'll start with you, Jess. Do you like writing? Yes, I like writing. It is difficult and it is also pleasurable. It's rare we get a positive response to that. Yeah. <laughs> so thank because you. Also, like if I didn't like it, like, I don't want to. I don't want to torture myself. Like the world is already hard enough. Yes. I don't want to be engaged in activities that feel torturous. Yeah. So I think writing is hard, but it mostly feels good. Love to hear this, Catherine. Who do you write for? Oh, that's so funny. Having just like uh, read Barbara Christian's answer to that question. Yeah. Um, I do it. I mean, I do it for my community and 
And I do that because I want to live in that community. Like I, I do it for myself um, in hopes of building the kind of world that I want to live in and helping support the other people that I want to be in it with. And I do it, you know, and I do it for readers too, because if I can bring more people along into the ideas that I find exciting and the people whose ideas I want to swim in, to, to quote Jess quoting Imani Perry, um, and I, again, I feel like there's something like when you say for my community, there's a totally ridiculous uh, stigma that that's, that that's somehow um, good, that it's good or ethical to be concerned with your community. And maybe, you know, I, I do care about ethics and I do care about being ethical as a craftsperson, but, I, but it's really because I just think that being a person can be so exciting and interesting and nuanced and like it's, it's about living in an exciting, diverse and truthful world and truth being so much more complicated and various and like not, not truth being good, although it is in many ways, but truth being just this Mm. space where actually the possibilities are so much more open because we're Mm. being honest about what it actually is to experience being in the world. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Jess, which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a drink with? I love when you ask this question, <laughs> and I have been thinking about this for a long time because I had a feeling it was going to come to me. <laughs> so today, I want to have a drink with Zora Neale Hurston. I recently um, completed for the first time uh, Valerie Boyd's biography of Zora Neale Hurston, Wrapped in Rainbows. Previously, I had only kind of read it in chunks and sections and classes here and there. And she lived such a fascinating life. And I think when people hear the name Zora Neale Hurston, we have an image or a, a set of images that come to mind. And I think she's an author who we especially those of us in North America, like who we think we know really well, but she is infinitely more complex than even I thought I knew or realized Um, from her work, of course, in Florida, her work as a part of a cadre of like young black writers in the Harlem Renaissance to the writings and the travels that she makes in Jamaica and Haiti and Honduras, um, Nicaragua. Like she just is this exceptionally unparalleled person of the 20th century. And I want to sit down and talk with her about, you know, her love life. She marries so frequently, you know, I want to talk to her about cooking. She was known to cook really well. I want to talk to her, about what it meant to be broke at times and not have any money, what it meant to like apply for fellowships and get rejected. I want to talk to her about going back to graduate school or lying about her age. You know, I have all these questions for her, um, especially because you read Valerie Boyd's work talking about kind of swimming in someone's imagination and you're like, oh my gosh, this Zora Neale Hurston is just a person even as someone who's read her work and feels confident talking about her from a literary standpoint, the um, 
the way she's brought back to us through Valley Boy's biography, it's quite a profound um, experience. So today I'm thinking about what kind of drinks Orin O'Hurston would ask for at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> what a good answer. And I hope you don't mind my saying that while you um, unspooled that thinking, I, I bought the biography you just mentioned. When, when did it come out, by the 2003. way? 2003. Oh, wow. So it's been, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Did she pass during the pandemic or was it before? She passed during the pandemic because she also edited Alice Walker's Walker. yes, diaries, yes. but she didn't live to see it come out. Yes, I knew there was something. Yeah, no, I remember. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so to Catherine, what is the text you want to write but know you won't? This is funny. I, I heard you ask Kate Wolf this last week, and I was like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. But <laughs> I didn't think about what I would say. <laughs> it's the thorniest of the question. Okay. This is, it's a, I mean, it's kind of a silly answer, but I'd like to write a, a, a biography of Robert and Michelle King who make The Good Wife and The Good Fight and, um, and the show Evil. You're making me so happy. I don't know in my like trajectory as in somebody who writes about art, I'll, I'll ever get there. But, <laughs> but I love those shows. I mean, those shows give me a lot of pleasure. That's that's why I think they're really good television, um, and they've gotten me through periods of my life that I that I, that will make me forever grateful to that you know to them existing. But I also think like they're doing such interesting things with um, conservatism versus like the, like the way they actually tried it with this last season of the Good Fight, which I think was very much of the 2016 election. Like it very much came out of that. And I think so much has changed politically since then that that show could probably never have existed if it had been happened after the 2018 midterms, even like we were in a different place, but trying to get into the gnarliness of conservative and liberal working together. And maybe in, in the good fight, it's, it's um, not always, but often in this more elitist circles where, where, you know, even the, even people on the left have a lot of access to capital, which changes their situation. And, um, anyway, I, I think that it would be kind of amazing if I could say that like a decade of my life, just like immersed in the, in those TV shows and talking to the people who made them and like, you know, spiraling out to the ideas that come from them. I find it fascinating and highly rewarding that your answer sort of parallels Kate's actually in a, in the sense of wanting to get into pop culture writ large. Um, and this maybe feeling that writing about art is n- certainly not easier, but maybe there's a duty bound qualities, right? That we're, we can't allow ourselves the frivolousness or it, it certainly in your case, it sounds like the time and resources it would require as a big factor. But to me, I think it's more about just, just like, um, how you get, you get kind of stuck in a field yeah. and moving out of that field seems kind of hard. And plus there's a lot of things I still want to do in this field. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a question of diluting maybe. God, I'd be the first reader though. The very first. <laughs> okay. With an eye to the time, I'll ask one last question of Jess. What is the last thing that you wrote that you feel good about? Oh, the last thing I wrote that I feel really good about is the June Clark essay for Momus. Nice. I think that she's such an incredible artist. I loved hearing more about what it meant for her and her family to 
dodge the draft and move to Canada. I loved hearing about her love for Harlem. And I felt like that was a moment when I just kind of got to follow a question and it all came together. I mean, with much thanks to Murray, our amazing colleague here. Um, that was that was really fun to work mm. on. Mm. Oh, it's satisfying to hear. For our listeners, it was Jessica Lynn's first piece officially for Momus, um, which almost felt sort of belated, and you know, like why hadn't we done it sooner? And it and it's a it's a profoundly well built and considered text, so that's great to hear. Thank you both. This has been super rewarding, and just I was amazed by by how we are dropping into channels that have been established over email and various meetings, but never quite explored in this, with this depth. I'm, I'm really moved and profoundly happy that we could host this chat. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's such yeah, a, yeah. such a pleasure to talk to both of you about, about these things, about Barbara yeah. Christian too. Momus the Podcast is produced by Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. Jacob Irish is our editor. Thanks to Jessica Lynn and Catherine G. Wagley for their contributions to this season. If you like the show, please think about supporting us through reviews, sharing, or supporting us monthly at patreon.com backslash momusart. Yes, your support is necessary and really makes a huge difference to our very small team and it goes directly to paying contributors and staff this has this been has episode, been episode f- 40 what? <laughs> i say the last no line. because you just got the last line before it oh fine you can do it this one time this has been episode 49 of momus the podcast <laughs>